Hey, Joe. Yes. Do you see the incipient war over playback speeds that's going on on Twitter? <laughs> I saw I saw some comments within our our little oral argument uh, coterie. Yes, I didn't I didn't realize. Is it breaking out into a wider war? It it seems that there's a lot of disagreement about this, and and there's even some seriously. Well, you might consider passive aggressive tweeting about the proper speeds. Not really. I'm, I might be exaggerating just a little bit, but okay. I, I encourage this sort of kind of, uh, you Look, know, harmless, um, harmless diversion of aggression into small issues like playback speeds. Yes, I agree. Sarah Light. Yes. Hi. Hello, Sarah. It's Joe and Christian. Hi, Joe and Christian. Can you hear me all right? We, we, can, hear, we can hear you just fine. This is Christian. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm now speaking and, and Joe was speaking just a second ago. Hopefully you can tell us apart. But it, in the end, it whether you do or don't, it doesn't really matter, does it, Joe? <laughs> okay, that's totally fine. <laughs> I think Sounds it's a grave good. injustice to be mistaken for Christian, but, <laughs> but because we disagree about virtually everything, he thinks it's just fine for me to be mistaken for Christian. No, well, that's... clearly I'm on the winning side of that, of that confusion. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sarah, one question I had, which isn't about the paper at all, but I'm just curious. Um, yes. Is, is the sort of the, the law professor in the business school phenomenon. And, and you're, yes. at, you're at Wharton, so could you just tell us a little bit about like about that and and what it's like and what's your take on that? Yes. So I am a professor at the Wharton School of Business, even though my background and training is in law and I previously taught at a law school. The Wharton School has a department of legal studies and business ethics. And that department is a combination of law professors ethics professors and law and ethics professors. So some of the people in the department like me have a JD. Others have a JD and a PhD, some in philosophy, one in sociology, um, one in anthropology. And then there are several people in the department who have just a PhD in philosophy and not a law background. So we teach the core courses on ethics, on law, Um, And at Wharton, what's interesting is that the business school is not just MBA students, it is also the Wharton undergraduate students. Hmm. So we teach the kind of introduction to law classes for the undergraduate population as well. So it's actually incredibly interesting. It's this really interdisciplinary department. So when I teach my kind of core class in environmental management law and policy, I have undergraduates from Wharton. I have undergraduates from the School of Arts and Sciences at Penn, and I have MBA students and master's students all together in the same class. Cool. Should we get started with the substance? Yeah. Because I, I got I to warn you, Sarah, the, you're, reading your paper made me think of about a billion things. Great. Fabulous. <laughs> I'm going to take some notes. I don't know. Well, no, I mean, you know, I don't know if you should take any notes. I should be the one taking notes. But but it did make me, you know, it, it touched a lot of the things that I've been thinking about. It seems like we've been fellow travelers in our interest in public and private institutions and institutional choice and and observing patterns of similarity between public and private institutions. But then also like your choice of topics. And this is where I think we should get started with Forget the federalism stuff. Forget everything else for now. But I think we should get started just talking about Uber and Lyft, and kind of the uh, the que- the question over whether there's an environmental impact. And that kind of, but I also want to get eventually. I don't know if you guys want to go here with me, but I, I want to talk about guns a little bit um, at the end because I I think there are some lessons here um, that are you know consonant with the way I've been thinking about the problem. I, anyway, I think this 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 uncovers a huge opportunity to think more broadly about 
societal problems. But let's can we does that sound reasonable? Is this because a, it's about institutional choice. And in that sense. Yeah. And, and it's about the way that society decides complicated questions involving lots of discrete behaviors and how it deals with problems of uncertainty and doing that. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. And I think the Uber Lyft situation is a, just a really great example for you to kind of mine in this paper because it's, it connects like very granular behaviors with very broad scale problems about which people have disagreements at all kinds of levels of government. So, and highlights the uncertainty issue. Yeah. I think really well. Yeah, very well. So Sarah, Sarah, maybe you could lay it out like that for us in terms of like, how did you get interested in the Uber and Lyft phenomenon from an environmental perspective? Sure. Well, so my perspective is generally always an environmental perspective. <laughs> um, I, you know, that is tends to be the lens through which I look at a lot of the both specific policy questions and institutional choice questions and federalism questions, kind of the, the larger questions as well. Um what I found really interesting was reading not only popular press accounts about you know what the big fights are with respect to Uber and Lyft as they are developing as new firms coming into different cities, coming into different states, um, and also then beginning to look at what legal scholars were focusing on in their scholarship. And those subjects tended to be the things that have been kind of front page news. So the big issues have really been, what is the nature of the relationship between Uber and its drivers? Are the drivers employees or are they independent contractors or do we need some new third category? Same thing with the question of, is Uber and Lyft service a taxi? Is it a limousine? Is it a charter party carrier? Or is it some new third thing that we need to come up with? The basic problem, right, is that um, – well, I don't know, basic problem. But it's a typical kind of legal thing where you, where you get a new thing in the marketplace, a new thing. And, and the law works by identifying certain categories. And if you're in a certain category, then a bunch of law kind of automatically comes with that, right? So if you're an employee, Absolutely. there's all this law that comes with it. If you're a taxi cab company, there's all kinds of regulations. And so then you get this new entrant in the market, which challenges those existing categories, right? Exactly, exactly. And so it challenges it in in a whole host of ways, because whether these drivers are employees or independent contractors has implications for hours and wages and and other employment law protections. Similarly, if these companies are taxi services, then they're governed under certain state or local rules regarding taxis, and that requires background checks and insurance and licensing. And, and, And so this question of, is this something that we've seen before? Is it familiar or is it a new thing? keeps coming up in a number of different contexts. And so I think that that raises some really interesting questions about how to regulate, whether to regulate, should we leave these new firms to innovate? Are they themselves a new form of regulation, right? I mean, these are the types of questions that have been coming up. What seemed really obvious to me, but was not getting a lot of attention is these are cars, right? At a really yeah. basic level, this, these are cars. This is transportation by vehicle. And so if you think about the way that our national environmental footprint works or how it looks, the largest percentage of our nation's greenhouse gas emissions come from electricity generation. No big surprise there. But the second largest category come from transportation emissions. And it's about a quarter, slightly more than a quarter of U.S. emissions as of our last 
national greenhouse gas inventory come from transportation. And we've just had this big agreement reached in Paris, the Paris Climate Agreement, whereby nations have agreed to limit warming of the earth to less than two degrees Celsius, possibly 1.5 degrees as a kind of better target, right? And so in order to meet these standards, not only are we going to need to transform the way that electricity is generated in the United States and globally, we also are going to need to think really broadly about transportation. And well, so that, to, that so quarter to, that's transportation, let me just interrupt. And that yeah, quarter please. that's transportation, what percentage of that quarter that's transportation is cars? You know, I would have to go back to the exact figures. Cars and trucks are certainly the largest percentage mm, okay. as compared to things like, you know, ships or uh, rail or something like that. Um, would, just would buses, by- would public transportation buses be included in the in that car and truck category or? I don't think so. I mean, obviously, if you're thinking about vehicular transportation, then yes, those are vehicles. I don't, you know, I, don't quote me on the exact figures. I actually don't. I I wouldn't be able to break it down. The only reason I was this asking is, this is, is, a, this is a quote free zone. So yes, good. So <laughs> I would just tell you, if, you know, I, the truth is I could look it up, but I don't have it. In my yeah. And, and the only reason I was asking is just to be because if you're thinking about, I mean, one thing that I think is really neat about about your description of Uber is in, in the way that you sort of narrow down on the things that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And and part of what we don't know, it seems to be, is when someone takes an Uber ride, what was that a substitute for? Yes. Uh, right. And if it's a bus ride, that has one sort of chain of consequences. If it was using their own car, a different chain, uh, using a taxi, a different chain, maybe. So it just I was just trying to get a handle on on the environmental problem is such that a lot more people using cars a lot more often than what they would substitute for that would be a, a pretty dramatic concern right and not not just that but but also you know is, is the model by which uber drives so when you call an uber you you know you're calling from this pool of people who may just be getting into the you know into the market because of surge pricing or whatever right so they're driving point to point right rather than a taxi kind of prowling the city and usual so is, is there all kinds of you know, even if you were just to compare an Uber to a taxi, there are lots of unknowns about which is actually consume, you know, producing more greenhouse gas emissions. Also, it's not just substitution for one mode or the other. You talk in the paper, Sarah, a little bit about the uncertainty over what, how much of this travel is induced. So how, how, mu- how much people are traveling from point to point where they would have stayed at home or stayed mm, where they were, right. but for this kind of low transaction, you know, they don't have to talk to anybody. So how do, do we anything. begin to get our arms around what the environmental impact of Uber might be? Right. Well, so that's where the empirical studies need to come in. And empirical studies are just beginning to arise. So in the draft of the paper that um, that I had posted online, which I'm sure you saw, I referred to one study by the Berkeley Transportation Center, which was um, what's called an intercept study in San Francisco in three different neighborhoods about a year ago, where basically people getting out of Uber and Lyft vehicles were interviewed, as well as other people on the street were interviewed about their practices using uh, what those authors called ride sourcing. So they they distinguish ride sourcing, which is Uber and Lyft, from ride sharing, which would be um, more like carpooling. And what they found was that there was a small but significant 8% induced travel effect, which meant that 
8% of the riders whom they interviewed were taking rides that they would not otherwise have taken. That some of those rides were replacing rides in taxis, some were replacing rides in personal vehicles, and some were replacing rides in public transportation. There has been another study that has come out by the what's called the Shared Use Mobility Center um, that came out within the last six months that was trying to get more specifically at the question of what is the relationship between Uber and Lyft and public transit. And their conclusion was that people tend to use Uber and Lyft more frequently at times when public transit is not as frequent or as convenient. So between the hours of 10 p.m. and 4 a.m., often when there is less public transit availability, that tends to be a time when people are using Uber and Lyft more frequently. And so the authors of that study concluded that Uber and Lyft tend to be complementary to public transportation. There are other efforts by local governments and other institutions to try to achieve a more complementary relationship between Uber and public transit. And when I say Uber, I mean Uber and all of the other firms in this space. So, for example, there's a city in Florida that has begun subsidizing rides in Uber vehicles. And there is actually a higher subsidy if the Uber ride begins or ends at a rail transit stop. Hmm. SEPTA, which is the public transit authority in southeastern Pennsylvania, which runs the trains and trolleys and the regional rail, has also announced that it may begin a pilot program this summer to um, subsidize Uber rides that end at certain suburban public transit stops on the SEPTA rail lines that have insufficient parking. And they're trying to figure out whether part of the reason why people in the suburbs are not taking regional rail as frequently as they could is because they can't park when they get to the station. So if that problem is solved by using Uber, then maybe that could potentially increase public transit demand. So what I think is really important, and I I know that I'm going on for a little bit here, what I think is really important is not just the compared to what now when we're looking at status quo, public transportation or alternative options, but you need to take a kind of dynamic approach. So if Uber and Lyft are convenient between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m., is that going to reduce demand for public transit improvements between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m., right? In the absence of Uber or Lyft, might the world be a better place from the perspective of greenhouse gas emissions if there were actually more demand for more shared transportation or public transportation during those hours. And that's just a piece of it, though, right? Because if you just think about like, and you've already discussed a couple of different ways that different scales of government have poked and prodded at Uber in different ways to achieve different outcomes, right? But like, if we just ask, like, is is Uber as it's run a good thing? And how could it be better? You're going to be asking things like, okay, what are the environmental costs of Uber as it is? And what are the kinds of cost reductions we could achieve by poking it or prodding it in different ways. And so one of the things you're going to think about is like, all right, so just imagine one person who's deciding whether to go somewhere and they're looking at all their transportation options and how much they want to go to that place and how much it will cost. And and for whatever reason, under that bundle of, of, of benefits and costs, they think Uber is the is the best way to go there. And they, in fact, will make that trip if Uber is available. You have to take into account, okay, so what are the costs of Uber in that trip, but also what are the benefits of having taken that trip? And this translates into like overall economic benefit or satisfaction of preferences. But also, if you just look at environmental costs, it gets complicated. At some point, you just have to kind of cut things off because it's not just the trip itself, but 
what kind of environmental cost will they impose when they get to where they're going versus what they would have imposed had they stayed at home or where they were, right? So so maybe I'm taking an Uber to an air-conditioned movie theater, <laughs> which is uh, cheaper to air-condition than, say, my private home, like per capita, right? And and then you kind of it's just snowball those costs and benefits and you get to an extreme chain of uh, – uh, extreme web of causation all coming out from these multiple private choices. So in a way, this the cost-benefit kind of calculations, they always kind of carry the air of – an illusory air of certainty, but but they never were going to achieve it, right? Because, you know, um, I, I'm not making any sense We here. have to Do make you, policy judgments about where to cut off your calculations, right? Yeah. Right. And I think that that's – I think that that's a really interesting question in this context, right? So there has been a move in environmental law and policy – to a kind of more ecological approach to looking at causation, right? So when I'm thinking about emissions, I'm not necessarily just thinking about my on-site emissions. If I'm a firm, you know, um, trucks driving around on-site emitting carbon dioxide, I'm also thinking about the emissions off-site at the power plant from which um, my electricity is generated. I might be thinking about the emissions contained in the products that I manufacture as those products are being used by consumers. I probably would not go so far as to say that Uber is responsible for the air conditioning at the movie theater. I think that's probably on someone else's balance sheet. But one other really important question in terms of this kind of life cycle approach to emissions is, does the existence of Uber and Lyft reduce the number of privately owned vehicles, right? Because then all of the upstream emissions and other environmental impacts that are embodied within the manufacture of vehicles um, could potentially be reduced. So that's a... Yeah, I guess what I'm saying by the by the air conditioning example is, is just that in reality, if we wanted to isolate a particular decision that maybe a consumer is making and ask, what are the effects of that? We would need to know the state of the world if that decision were cast in one direction versus the state of the world if it were cast in another. That's the total, you know, we would have to evaluate that as a society. Yes. Which world do we prefer? And those worlds are different in many ways, not just in whether they took an Uber or not, took an Uber or stayed home, because the taking of the Uber has other consequences and the staying home has a bunch of other consequences. Absolutely. And, and so it, it's interesting that you mentioned responsibility, though, because I think one of the ways that we model, because that's all we can do, these different states of the world, like we model it to a certain level of approximation. The rational actor model encourages this, you know, because we can't do any better. We can't really do any better than than kind of predict some of the consequences of different choices and then try to cost those out or, or think morally about them. But that phrase you use responsibility implies a kind of morality, right? That when we talk about regulating Uber, it's responsible for some altered states of the world because of consumer choice, but not because of others. Is that significant to you? I mean, or potentially? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I am in a department full, not only of lawyers, but also of ethicists and moral philosophers. So it's kind of a constant question in my mind when I'm thinking about what responsibility means is whether responsibility is merely limited to the policy implications and the policy choices that we make when assigning legal, legal responsibility versus the moral notion of who ought to be responsible for what and under what theory. Um, so this paper does not address the no, yeah, moral yeah. philosophical implications so much as the the questions about 
you know, who should be authorized to regulate when we consider these complex webs and, and chains of... Yeah, I think you described well the complexity of the of the question about, you know, is Uber as currently constituted a net plus or a net minus for the environment? And and if it were nudged in this way or that way, would it be better or worse? I mean, th- I think we've set up quite well, I mean, already, and if people read your paper, they can see this in even more detail, that this is a complicated question uh, about which we need to gather much more data. And even with gathering more data, you know, the world changes and we'll never kind of have all the information we would need to make a perfect decision. And so the next, so there are kind of two other pieces that I see that come into your paper. The first is the idea of the precautionary principle in general. And then the other is about institutional choice. And you, and you pair those two together in an interesting theory. Do you want to talk about the precautionary principle and how it applies? And The precautionary principle at heart basically says that when we're in a situation of potentially significant risks to health, safety, or the environment, but we're unsure about the magnitude of the risk, that regulation can still proceed. The burden should be on the regulated community to demonstrate that its products or process or new business model is safe rather than on the government to demonstrate that it's unsafe before regulation can proceed. So I'm shipping a food product that's got some dye in it and there's no evidence that it's actually harmful, but we know maybe other food additives are harmful or that has happened before. If we apply the precautionary principle as a regulator to that situation, we would conclude what? We would conclude that it is appropriate um, and permissible for the regulator to take some kind of regulatory action um, before establishing for certain that the food additive is unsafe. Right. So you can imagine two different worlds. In one world, the regulator needs to demonstrate that food additive is unsafe. I'm going to regulate it in this way. In another world, the regulator, which is the world of the precautionary principle, the regulator says, I actually don't know whether that food additive is safe or unsafe. It's better to be safe than sorry. Let's impose some kind of regulatory limits like that may be used in industrial processes, but it cannot be used in food. And we're going to require the firm that manufactured that food additive to um, come up with a study demonstrating its impact on animals or possibly on humans before we are going to allow it to be part of uh, food that we eat. Well, this is sort of the way food and drug law works now, right? Both of these things are represented. The food half of food and drug law basically is you know, sell what you want as long as you label it properly. And if problems crop up, we'll address the problems that crop up. Drug law, the other half of it, says you can't sell it at all as a drug unless you've gotten our permission, a condition of which is that you prove it's safe and effective for the health claim you're going to make. So food and drug law is interesting because it actually has both those. Yeah. And I think that the I think the the critique that and 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 jump in and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, I think the critique that people like Cass Sunstein level on this is that the precautionary principle purports to provide a rational grounding for favoring regulatory assessment of costs, right, toward, you know, on the testing of the drug rather than on the public to gather information, right? It purports to do that by saying, you know, if we don't know and there's a danger, you should be careful. But very much like in Kosa's original paper, Problem of Social Costs, right, he establishes that, you know, 
this idea of an externality is, is kind of ginned up. Like what's underlying that is an idea about how things should be, right? And then you see the externality is how it's departing from what should be, but you actually don't have a good theory for what should be. The farmer's causing the fire as much as the train engine yeah, is causing exactly. the fire. Yeah, exactly. The noisemaker is so, causing the harm as much as the person right, wants right, to silence right. it. We've talked about this before in the show, right? So that reappears here. I think that's really the core of Cass's uh, critique, right? Is that if you make the manufacturer of the food additive do all these studies and put the costs there, it might isolate and, and might save the harms that you hope to prevent, right? It, it, it eliminates some of the risk that it will cause damage down the road. Right. But it but also it, prevents it, some benefit. It could prevent massive benefits, yeah. right? And maybe the food could. additive allows you to feed a lot of people who might starve otherwise, sure. right? And so it makes the mistake that we kind of talked about earlier of, of kind of isolating particular kinds of, cause, uh, of costs and benefits instead of understanding that each decision we make kind of leads to a fork in the world that we're creating. And so what you're comparing are whole worlds. Right? right, rather than isolated costs and benefits, and so the the regulation of the food additive would say what we want to achieve here is the elimination of risk to public health from this additive, rather than a fuller scope of understanding. Right. So, I mean, Cass Sunstein has been, in some cases, a very vocal critic of the precautionary principle, and there are certainly others. And the there are really kind of two primary critiques of the precautionary principle. One is that it doesn't really tell you what to do. And the second is that it fails to take into account the idea that there may be risk-risk trade-offs. This is mm-hmm. the, the Cozian point about the reciprocity of harms, right? So right. Um, I might be harming my neighbor by blowing smoke from my chimney into his house, but he might be harming me by building his house there in the first place when nobody would be, would be harmed if I just had a chimney in the middle of an open farm, uh, like an open field. In the Uber-Lyft context, I think it's important to think about, all right, well, so what are the potential trade-offs? So we've talked about some of them that we just simply don't know, right? We're uncertain as to whether ceteris paribus, all else being held equal, the world currently as it is, public transportation availability as it is, whether Uber and Lyft are increasing or decreasing greenhouse gas emissions. But it's probably possible to come up with some model that answers that question. The much more complicated question is the multiple worlds that that you're postulating, right? And the ways in which the presence of this new form of business may create entirely new worlds or its absence might create different worlds. Um, but when we think about the concept of risk-risk trade-offs, an example would be, all right, so what if Uber does in fact increase greenhouse gas emissions? but it reduces drunk driving deaths. How do you balance those two things, right? So maybe in fact, Uber is really great because it's reducing drunk driving deaths because drunk 20-somethings call an Uber instead of driving each other home after a party. And that has immediate, recognizable, quantifiable benefits that we need to take into account. Cass Sunstein's critique of the precautionary principle would say you need to look at that, right? You need to look not only at the benefits that might come from restricting a potentially hazardous substance entering the food supply, but you also need to take into account the costs of doing that. So I think that that's totally fair, but I don't think that that's necessarily an insurmountable problem for the precautionary principle at sort of at its ordinary theoretical level or at the level of, of bringing it to the questions of institutional choice that I that I talk about in the article, because there are always ways to tailor regulations and rules. So if Uber reduces drunk driving deaths, then we don't want to ban Uber, even if it has negative environmental consequences. Maybe there's a way to regulate Uber, right? So you could say all Uber vehicles need to be 
zero emissions vehicles or all Uber vehicles need to be hybrid vehicles, right? Something that will reduce the greenhouse gas emissions while at the same time preserving the benefits in that it's reducing drunk driving deaths. So I think that that ultimately really becomes a question of tailoring. But it's very important to recognize all of those costs and all of those benefits when we're thinking about regulating under the precautionary principle. Assuming you can find a way to thread the needle, that there's a way to ameliorate the downside without sacrificing the upside. I mean, it could be that if you said all Uber vehicles have to be zero emission vehicles, it might mean that there were radically fewer Uber vehicles. That's uh, correct. Which might which might undercut the benefit of no drunk driving. By the way, as an aside, it seems to me that the people who <laughs> the firms in the United States and probably in lots of countries that that should be most avidly supporting Uber are people who make booze, um, because <laughs> it seems to me it does lead to a, a greater uh, consumption of booze, the f- existence of Uber. This um, is one way that we are so of two minds on uh, not not you and not you and me, but society at large. You know, when, it's always funny when you see when you see minimum parking requirements applied to bars and local land use codes. I don't know what those are. So, well, these are like you have to have cer- a certain number of parking spaces per expected patron or per square foot, right? Yeah, and, I think the best parking recommendation for a bar would be zero. Yeah, right, right. So people need to not drive right. there because they're going to have to drive home. But uh, uh, in any event, so um, one exception though to the precautionary principle that. Cass Sunstein gives, and I don't. It's it may not be relevant here, and I'm so. So we need to know which version of that Sarah's using, though, because there are different. There are different. Aren't there different levels of strictness of this precautionary idea? Yes. So there are absolutely different levels. Uh, You know, one scholar has counted more than ten different versions of the precautionary principle. The one that I adopt in this article is, I would say, a relatively uncontroversial formulation, which is this idea of burden shifting. It says that regulation can proceed even in the face of uncertainty. A very strong form of the precautionary principle would say, ban the activity until we know it's safe. I don't uh, advocate that version of the principle. So the version that I'm advocating, even a critic like Cass Sunstein has has said, is relatively uncontroversial. Does anyone actually advocate the principle, ban it until it's proved to be safe? Well, I think that's true for, for some things. Yes, so there, there are two different kinds of uncertainties here that may be worth un- disentangling because I've got an idea of the precautionary principle that applies to one but not the other. So one kind of uncertainty you might have is if we make this choice, what world will unfold? And we just don't know what's going to happen, right? So this is, you know, if we invent the atom bomb, are, countries gonna, are people going to use it? Is it going to be mutually assured destruction? Will it actually lead to more peace? More? We might be unclear about like what will actually happen if we make a certain choice. Another kind of uncertainty we have, though, is how will people in the future value the world that they've inherited? And so for, for this, I think, you know, my understanding of the precautionary principle has always been one of switching costs. You know, the example is that I've used before is um, uh, kind of the parking lot versus wetlands idea. You know, the, the choice we're faced right now with, say, is to we've got some wetlands and we want to know whether to make a parking lot here. And the economy maybe aggregating a bunch of individual preferences seems to point in favor of maybe making a strip mall with a parking lot where this wetland is. We're asking whether we should put a thumb on the scale against that or not based on some kind of precautionary principle idea. And that's one where maybe, you know, there are always uncertainties about how things will unfold in the future, but our main uncertainty may be how people in the future will value this thing. And we may just put in a discounting factor and other things to try to pretend like we know what's going to happen when we really don't. I've always thought that the issue there is that it's much, much, much easier to make a parking lot out of wetlands than it is to make wetlands out of a parking lot. Because the, the latter is something we just don't know how to do, which is to make nature. 
right? We just, that's extremely. So you err in favor of leaving the wetlands there because it's much harder to convert a, a parking lot back into wetland. Right. Okay. Right. And so, so that would argue for a certain kind of discounting based on future switching. So the total cost of choosing the parking lot. So in climate change, it seems to me to, uh, that it, it argues in favor of uh, restricting emissions now because we don't know how to turn. We don't know how to do terraforming it, exactly to make our planet habitable again. Versus, <laughs> right. it's much easier to take a good planet and turn it into a crap heap. Right. And and so this is the idea. And again, to bring up Cass Sunstein, who, you know, his prolific scholar has written about, as far as I can tell, everything. Um, <laughs> More than once. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Back back when I was in college and I was studying post-Soviet political economic transitions, I was citing Cass Sunstein back then as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about a totally different uh, different topic. So he has um, this idea that the precautionary principle, even if you criticize it, on average, that it's very important for irreversible or catastrophic harms, which is, I think, getting at exactly what you're talking about with the parking lot versus wetlands, right? It may be irreversible. Once you've made the decision to turn wetlands into a parking lot, you can't easily turn it back into wetlands. Yeah, I, I, think, I just don't, don't think he's – I don't think he's strong enough there though because I think it's a more – what he's citing is the extreme end of a broader principle about switching in the face of uncertainty over future values not mm. over future possibilities, right? And I just don't, in other words, if we don't know how people are going to value the two options in the future, but we have some guesses about that, we should at least include the switching costs times probabilities in order to add up the total costs and benefits of a particular choice. Because the total cost of building the parking lot now is the actual cost to build the parking lot minus the benefits plus the cost of switching in the event that switching will be what people in the future want, discounted by you know, discounted to present value. In other words, you know, all I'm doing there is I'm kind of expanding the future world calculation beyond the the present. I don't know if that makes sense. Right. But. No, it does. I mean, it does make sense in the context of cost benefit analysis. I mean, I'm not generally one who I'm skeptical of the idea that we can necessarily assign costs and benefits to all of these. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that from the paper know, too. Yeah, yeah. nature. Right. But I do think that it's important to recognize that one of the sort of defenses of the precautionary principle is that it can correct for certain cognitive biases. Yeah. And one of the cognitive biases that has been identified quite consistently is the idea that we tend to undervalue future harm at the expense of current harm and that we undervalue harms that are really hard to quantify as compared to harms that are easy to quantify. So in the, again, taking it back to the Uber and Lyft example, I think that that is important to keep in mind in two ways. So one is, it's really convenient for me to take an Uber or Lyft. And if you restrict it in some way, that makes it more costly. If you require zero emissions vehicles, that's not necessarily something that I'm going to want to vote for. Why? Because it makes it more costly. It might make it less available. So I'm going to suffer these costs that are direct and quantifiable. It's going to cost $5 instead of $4, or I'm going to have to wait six minutes instead of five minutes for my ride to show up. And those are things that people value more highly than the risk of climate change 150 years from now which is very hard to value. It's very hard to quantify. It's not immediate. It may not happen to you. It might happen to some future generation. And so when we're thinking about potentially... Excellent. Excellent. Someone else's dog. No, no, no. This, we always have dogs on the podcast. That's a very hearty pooch. What is the pooch's name? 
Oh, that's Agnes, and she feels very strongly about the precautionary. <laughs> She's um, guarding all kinds of things. She is. She is guarding principles. Um, no, so so the the point is that you know people tend to undervalue these future harms that are very hard to quantify, and so in the case of something irreversible and catastrophic like climate change, taking a more precautionary approach, which might say, look, even if we can't quantify exactly what the harms are in the future, we need to be cautious about this. And we need to think about whether at least some regulation now will prevent harms in the future. I think that that's worth doing. And so that's all that I'm advocating here. Yeah. And so this is this is great because I think the, you know, that's another route at getting at a kind of a critique of uh, of cost-benefit analysis in its simplest form, which counsels some humility against things which will be hard to change in the future. You know, which is, you could, you could take my switching cost example, just a critique of simple-minded cost-benefit and, and the ability to do things without kind of putting a thumb on the scale. And, but once we're here, and this gets to the r- real meat of your paper, you know, once which we're- Which 15 minutes in, I think it's about time. That's yeah, great. Well, yeah. well we, we right. like 10 minutes, we're like, you know, screwing around at the front end, right? So uh, <laughs> we've got this problem, which involves a lot of uncertainty. It involves, I think, uncertainty in terms of how things will unfold, but also in terms of like, which of these, you know, how people will value these future worlds that our choices are giving them. Right. And, and uh, we have, uh, you've given an account for why precaution should be used. And now you're going to connect that with the institutional choice question, right? So how does a a desire to use caution counsel for a particular kind of regulatory regime? Ordinarily, when we think about the precautionary principle, we're thinking about the question of whether to govern and what kind of regulation to employ. Should there be a tax? Should there be information disclosure? What I do in this paper that's the kind of unique contribution is saying – a precautionary approach can apply to the question of who gets to decide. So when we think about federalism, right, federalism in theory and practice is about the allocation of authority um, among different levels of government. And traditionally, it's about allocation of authority between the federal government and the states. Um, Some scholars uh, of federalism or what might also be called localism have incorporated the role of local governments as well. But it's sort of this question of how to allocate regulatory authority, who gets to decide whether to govern. And there are two different primary schools of thought. One is a kind of binary approach or dual federalism, which says you got to choose one. It's either the federal government or the states and gives reasons as to why one might be better than the other under different circumstances. Someone's got to have authority. Someone's got to have authority. Um, And it's one of two sovereigns and, and make your choice. We need to find the optimal regulator. Dynamic federalism says there isn't necessarily one right regulator. Overlap may be appropriate. And so there are so dynamic approaches are actually, I think, probably a more accurate descriptor of many regulatory regimes that we have currently in the United States, including cooperative federalism under something like the Clean Air Act, where the federal government sets regulatory limits, but the states figure out how to implement those limits. Or there could be federal rules, but the states can exceed those rules if they wish to, which um, would be called federal floor preemption. So it means that the states can't go below a certain level, but they can go above it, which means that at a certain point, both federal government and the states may be regulating in a particular area. What precautionary federalism says is that under conditions of uncertainty, it makes sense in the first instance to have multiple regulators and to avoid the 
preemptive effects of one regulator is best. Because just in the same way that we don't necessarily know what all the environmental impacts are or the safety or health impacts of a particular new form of business or a new chemical or of Uber and Lyft, we don't necessarily know who's going to be the best regulator. It may be that federal uniform rules make sense, but it might be that state experimentation alongside federal rules may make sense, or we might want the federal government, the states, and the local governments all to be able to act to address some of these concerns. Now, how, how can they all act without stepping on each other's toes? What's an example of that? Right. Well, um, there are a number of different ways to think about this. One would be that the federal government sets some kind of floor, right? So it could be in emission standards for new vehicles, but it might be the case that states could decide to exceed those levels. That's not the current regulatory environment that we have. Right now, we have emission standards that are set at the federal level. Um, And while California is permitted to exceed those standards under an exception under the Clean Air Act, right now, there's actually been a sort of negotiated rulemaking, not technically a negotiated rulemaking. There, There was a joint rulemaking between the EPA and the Department of Transportation in which California participated to set a single uniform standard for vehicle emissions. But that doesn't have to be the way that it is. We could have states exceeding federal emission standards. There also is the possibility that local governments could adopt uh, rules that would limit emissions locally. So a number of cities and other local governments have attempted to impose rules on their taxi industries to kind of green their taxis. And some of them have been successful and others of them have been struck down as preempted under federal law. And I think that that's a mistake. So one of the kind of takeaways of the paper is that I think that Courts are reading the preemption provisions of certain rules under the Clean Air Act and the Energy Policy Conservation Act too broadly, and that local governments should be able to experiment more with rules that um, reduce emissions from for hire vehicles in local jurisdictions. Now, Sarah, what would you do with this uh, critique? So, so what, what if I argue? And I, my actual thoughts about this are a little bit more complicated, but I just want to get this out on the table. That, in fact, our command and control environmental laws from the 70s, you know, the Nixon era environmental laws, have been amazingly successful when they've been applied. Yes, they've been you know, expensive and there have been citations. Of, you can cite to various kinds of, uh, of failures. But if you just measure the quality of the environment, they've been unbelievably successful. And what's changed uh, to get people to be maybe more interested in state experimentation and local experimentation is that Congress does not legislate anymore. It just stopped doing that, and at least in in terms of like public protecting kinds of uh, laws like this. And one explanation for that may be you know the eventual success of the Southern strategy, and uh, you can you know rehearse all your kinds of arguments for what's the matter with Kansas and all these other things to kind of get at why Congress doesn't legislate in the public interest anymore. Look, that's a very broad statement, but is kind of the legal academic and policy academic interest in multiscalar regulation at least in part driven by federal failure? Because after all, if there were like a federal gas tax, which were high, or a federal regulation, which clearly applied to carbon dioxide emissions, I mean, is there anybody really arguing that would not be preferable? Potentially. But I wonder, and I would, you know, again, I'm not an economist and I don't do the modeling, (laughs) but I imagine that even a federal carbon tax set to the social cost of carbon might be um, something that could be improved upon. 
even if there were some kind of uniform federal rule, I'm not sure that I would exclude or preempt the possibility of states or local governments trying to exceed that level of protection to try to be more protective. I mean, if there's any truth to the idea that that local that that facts on the ground in local circumstance are both better known to the people who are experiencing them and and those local circumstances could potentially affect the net outcome. If there's any truth to those two things put together, then it seems like there's always room to make things better or worse at the margin. And so if your if your question is, hey, let's have a carbon tax, and then should we also allow things to be tweaked at the margin? It seems to me they really are independent. Well, we, we really questions. should distinguish a couple of things because federal command and control on uh, regulations what's a paradigm on, of the on successful. What's yeah, a paradigm yeah. of the successful federal command and control kind of thing that you're talking about? I mean, like the um, discharge requirements on clean water. You okay. know, rivers aren't generally on fire anymore. Uh, the air over Los Angeles is much better than it used to be. I mean, you know. You can always criticize these because they're still they're, they're right. toxics. You know, I just wanted there to be an example yeah. because it, you used a very we ha- statement for people in the yeah. know, and I wanted there was a fork in the road in the seventies, and we went one way, and we could have gone to you know China, right? Look at what Beijing is experiencing now, right? So sure, but it, just one. I mean, just one note. Obviously, yes, under the Clean Air Act, for example, the the air under you know over Los Angeles is much cleaner, but the Clean Air Act em- embodies a cooperative federalism scheme. It does, so, yeah. In, so in places, the, so, right? In, in, in part, it's like truly command and control. In other parts, it allows the state to administer a command and control regime on its behalf, and there's some room for experimentation. And, and all these acts embody a, a number of different programs. And so I know that we're speaking right. broadly it's very here. Yeah, yeah, it is. You could imagine a federal climate change regulation in the mold of the more command and control oriented methods of the Clean Air Act. Things like, you know, if you have a source that's this big, you have to use this technology or you have to use the best available technology or you can't emit more than this, you know, thou shalt type regulations, right? Right. A carbon tax is all the way at the other end though because a carbon tax pushes regulation all the way down to the consumer level. Right. So yeah. it, it's right. it's yeah. it's even more cooperative. You know, and, and this is why you, you private regulator earlier. is you're making a your private decision. I wouldn't call a carbon tax cooperative. I, I mean, a carbon tax, <laughs> if set by the federal government, a carbon tax would be a market based mechanism. But it could be. I mean, you could imagine a federal carbon tax that preempts any additional higher taxes by state or local governments, sure. or you can imagine one that doesn't. Mm. So to me, whether it's, you know, command and control would be prescriptive rules, that sort of thou shalt, thou shalt not, what form the regulation takes, whether it's a tax or a, you know, prescriptive rule or a permitting system. For me, the key question is, who's issuing the rule and is exceeding the the um, level of protection permitted or not permitted. And in the paper, you tease out all kinds of interesting kind of political economies that are going on. You have states which will try to preempt local law. Sometimes states will not preempt local law. And if if all decisions are made at the local level, then Uber suddenly has to go and lobby a bunch of cities and counties. And that right. is an entirely different kind of political economy than if it can get everything at once at the federal level or the state level. The whole kind of interest group calculation changes depending on where these regulations come in. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this has been a really, really interesting um, phenomenon to observe. So just to give one example, in the state of Texas, Uber and Lyft spent more than a million dollars lobbying at the state house level 
um, for statewide legislation that would preempt local governance of Uber and Lyft. And they did not succeed. So the preemption language that they wanted, which would prohibit cities and um, local governments from regulating Uber and Lyft, um, was not included in the final legislation. Obviously, this had a real impact in the city of Austin. So the city of Austin insisted that all Uber drivers would need to be fingerprinted to sort of to be consistent with the rules imposed on taxi drivers in the city. And Uber resisted and said, look, our background checks are sufficient. And and if you continue to insist on this, we're going to pull out of the city. Austin insisted on the fingerprinting and Uber pulled out. So it's been replaced, again, by other similar types of services which have have entered the city of Austin. But that action by the city of Austin could not have happened if the language had been included in the Texas state legislation to preempt local or municipal or city. And and you cite that language in the paper. And did that did that bill almost pass? Um, I don't know exactly what the vote was. Yeah, it was proposed and, and but did not pass. It the, did not pass. Answer. But language like that exists in more than a dozen dozen other state laws that govern Uber and Lyft. And interestingly, in the state of Maine, at least, someone now a legislator has introduced legislation to revoke that some of that language um, in order to address uh, governance of Uber and Lyft at the Portland airport. It occurs to me that we might have listeners who don't know what preemption means. And we've been throwing and they've probably already turned us off. But, <laughs> but but it would be good if we just preemption just means that one level of government has passed a law and said other governments can't modify that. So you get, you know, if, uh, the subordinate government subordinate. Uh, you can imagine preemption working in all kinds of directions. But, yeah, usually hierarchically, you know, the federal government passes a law and then the states are forbidden from regulating that area. And you mentioned this earlier when we were talking about emission standards on, on cars, Sarah. Yes. And so one of the interesting dynamics here that just gives you a hint at the complexity of the political economy that's going on is that, you know, I think people ordinarily think of businesses as resisting regulation, right, and, and as railing against especially federal regulation. But it's oftentimes large businesses, interstate businesses, who are pushing for federal regulations, which is why they occur at all, because they don't want a multiplicity of state regulations because they want to concentrate their lobbying efforts is one of the big reasons. But they also want a, a stable um, regulatory environment so that they don't have to have several different kinds of products for different kinds of jurisdictions. So that's kind of one of the complicated inversions that can happen when you're thinking about, you know, when you get down to kind of brass tacks on how people are behaving, you know, who the buyers for legislation are, who the buyers for regulation are, and who the sellers are. Am I making any sense, Joe? Yeah. You're looking puzzled. I'd... Well, no, I think it is. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a stylized version of less regulation to say, I want less regulation. I want one rule instead of 50. Right. And the one rule is a national rule and the 50 rules are 50 potentially different state rules. Yeah. And, and just for kind of transaction cost reasons, a business might actually prefer a single regulation, which is more stringent than 50 different regulations, each of which is less stringent, but in a different way. Right. See, what's very interesting to me, though, and this is something that I talk about in the paper, is that Uber and Lyft aren't your traditional firms, right? They're not manufacturing a car that they then want to sell in 50 different states, and they're concerned that they're going to have to manufacture 50 different cars to deal with conflicting standards. Uber doesn't own the cars. These cars are owned by you. And by me, if I wanted to drive, right? Anybody could drive if if you want to. And so Uber doesn't necessarily, in my view, face 
the same kinds of conflicts because of the nature of its business model. So if there were a rule that said all Uber vehicles must be hybrids or zero emissions vehicles, Uber might feel some economic impact, but all that means is, well, I I drive a Prius, so I could be a, an Uber driver, but you drive a, you know, an Escalade, so you can't. Right. Um, so I think that that's something that's really interesting is that these the nature of the debate over preemption and federalism and who should govern and some of the arguments that are often made by industry in favor of one uniform rule don't fit with this business model. <laughs> what is it, Joe? Well, I'm, I mean, it, the, I understand the argument that Sarah is making and the insight uh, that she's describing. And, and I'm, but, but, but it does seem that whether or not Uber is a manufacturer uh, who could be located in multiple states um, or is instead a, a new kind of firm that facilitates transactions by other parties and skims some of the gain from trade, which is what Uber does seem to be to me, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it still has an interest in uniformity that makes it like the other firms. I mean, it just seems to me in Uber's ideal world, there would be a national statute that makes clear what it can do everywhere in the United States, that it would rather have that. Because then, it, first of all, it it knows now what the answer is everywhere. And second of all, it can now go to work making that rule what it would like it to be. I don't, I don't know what the national taxicab lobby is like, but the, the, the way this right plays out is that if you are in front of a decision maker and if you have sharply defined interests, so you have a, a few people highly motivated to get a result from that decision maker. And on the other side are, well, basically no one because it's a bunch it's, – it's too many people with too small an interest, a diffuse interest. Right. Like this is the classic public choice problem, right, right where the, you get this kind of consensual demand pattern. So if you've got a sharp interest, then that will, that will cause legislative action or regulatory action and these diffuse actions won't be able to resist it. But if you've got sharp versus sharp – Right. Then then the decision maker is likely to kind of kick the can down the road or, or not decide at all. And so the decision that someone like an Uber, it seems to me, has to make, right, is if we take our sharp interest and we divide it over all the number of jurisdictions in the United States, we're just not going to be able to form a sharp an interest in each of those jurisdictions. Right. So so one one thing that kind of pushing the pushing the decision down in scale does to localities is it waters down the level of lobbying effort that any firm can muster. Right. And so maybe you actually get kind of soft versus soft by the time you get down to mm. the local level. Right? right. On the other hand, if you're at the highest possible level, sometimes you're sharp versus sharp. You know, it's the taxi cab lobby versus the Uber lobby. And maybe they'd be better off at a slightly lower level where maybe the taxi cab people can't. You know, I, this is probably a really bad example for this because I think taxi cab companies are probably most powerful locally. But I, 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 that's just and, a guess. And my guess is they exist locally sim- simply as an accident of history. That at the, the time when, um, at the times when figuring out how to regulate people who were selling rides for hire came about uh, in an in a urbanization context, um, it was in a context where those urban centers are going to develop their own regulatory yeah. regimes one by one. New York City, San Francisco... Chicago, they're Atlanta, they're separate enough from each other. They're just going to make up the rules that make sense for their local circumstance, Boston. Right. Um, 
And, and that's why Uber is stuck fighting fires in Boston, Chicago, <laughs> Dallas, San Francisco, L.A. Well, is it kind of like the car dealership model? You know, Tesla is having trouble getting into um, some jurisdictions where the state law requires there to be a dealer between the manufacturer and the, and the buyer. You know, I think was it New Jersey which had a problem with this, where they had these weird. Yeah, and quotes. these are all holdovers from the fact that that it's um, you know the nation used to be bigger and from a regulatory perspective, so you'd have decisions made in these in states instead of at the the national. And that's um, one where my hypothesis would be that Tesla does best at the federal level, or maybe the hyper local level, and worst at the state level. Mm. But I don't know. I don't know. Right. We've also lost the uncertainty thread, Sarah. Get, get, can you help us get the uncertainty thread back in here? How, like, it seemed like your paper was saying also that be, precisely because the uncertainty can change over time, yes, that the way we approach the federalism question, who should regulate, should also be malleable over time. Yes, that's absolutely right. So the idea is that at the time of greatest uncertainty, which arguably is now when there are essentially almost no empirical studies on um, the environmental impacts of these new forms of business, that is the time when experimentation and regulatory overlap is most appropriate. However, as we learn more information or as the business models develop to give us greater certainty about whether these things are actually good for the environment or not, then maybe it may become appropriate to shift to some kind of uniform standard. The idea is that at the height of uncertainty, that's when it's most appropriate to have more experimentation. And as uncertainty diminishes, then the argument for industry that it wants to reduce its transaction costs and face only a single standard may make more sense. So how so, are we going to get that information? Where is that going to come from? Well, um, part of the idea of the precautionary principle is that it's an information forcing measure because industry should want to produce information demonstrating that its products are safe um, in order to avoid regulation. So if government regulators are able to regulate under the precautionary approach, then industry should want to produce information. And that's kind of one theory behind the precautionary principle. I would argue that the same rationale applies to precautionary federalism, which is that if industry wants that single uniform standard, as we were talking about earlier, then they should want to produce information demonstrating that they actually have a low environmental impact or a better environmental impact than the status quo, or should adopt measures to make sure that their environmental impact is low. So one of the other sort of research areas that I um, uh, look into is the idea of private environmental governance. So if Uber and Lyft decide that on their own voluntarily, rather than as a matter of public law, that they want to insist that all Uber vehicles must be zero emissions or hybrid, right, then that would be one step in the right direction to making sure that these um, vehicles are not emitting uh, as much as some alternative vehicles might be. And so that maybe they are better than the status quo. Yeah, like I said, this has gotten us thinking about many, many, many things. And to me, you're on to exactly the right kind of question, right, that these are in, in the face of uncertainty, no one is going to will, – will ever really agree on exactly what the right thing to do is because no rational person can possibly say in the face of uncertainty there is a certain right thing to do. Right. And so the question is, you know, how are we going to disperse the decision-making power in, in light of that uncertainty? And this is a really fascinating glimpse at that question, I think. 
Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your great questions. This has been a very lively discussion. Awesome. Thank you so thank much you for so joining much, us. Sarah. Thank you very much. Take care.